From the LA Times Studios, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American celebrity about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm Frank Sean. And I'm Jen Yamato. This week on episode 11 of our podcast, we are joined by the actor Sung Kang. He'll talk about the highs and the lows he's navigated during his Hollywood journey, even after landing his iconic role in the Fast and Furious franchise. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm too Asian or I'm too tall or too short, too dark. All of it. So then that starts to stunt your growth because then you go into an audition, you're scared and you're nervous because this is all you got. At the time of this recording, Sung was set to make a splashy return in the big screen action sequel Fast 9. Well, that was before its release was pushed to 2021 due to COVID-19. Okay, so let's get started. Asian Enough is presented by Little America, now streaming exclusively on Apple TV+, Plus in the TV app, on all iOS devices, and TV app-supported devices. This advertiser has no influence over editorial decisions or content. There's enough uncertainty to go around these days, especially if you own a business. Luckily, NetSuite reduces it by giving you visibility and control. With so many critical decisions to make, you need the right numbers, and you need them right now. NetSuite by Oracle is the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you get financials, cash flow, payroll, inventory, and more, all in one place. So you have clear visibility and total control of your business. NetSuite customers have the flexibility to work from anywhere, with immediate clarity on critical information right at their fingertips. No more guessing, no more waiting. Make smarter decisions with confidence, because you've got crystal clear visibility into your numbers. It's time to join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to stay in control. Don't wait to get your free guide and schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com enough. That's netsuite.com enough. NetSuite. Business grows here. Sung Kang, you know him as a street racer's Han Solo. I love that. Han Solo in the Fast and Furious movies. And you can argue that Sung's portrayal of Han, the impossibly cool mentor of Tokyo Drift and a member of the core Fast and Furious family, made the franchise the most surprising and successful blockbuster series in Hollywood history. I would definitely make that argument. So we are very lucky to have the chance to speak with Sung today on Asian Enough. Thank you for being here with us. Thanks for having me. We want to, I guess, start off by addressing the big news, which is you are coming back to the Fast and Furious franchise for the upcoming Fast and Furious 9, which is huge for those of us who obsessively watch these movies because we know that Han, your character, has been gone for a couple movies and in fact has one of the sort of most tremendous and most unpredictable arcs, I feel like, in movie history, in that, you know, Tokyo Drift, which was the third movie in the Fast and Furious franchise, is the one that you originated this character in. We'd love to hear from you. Like, what has your relationship with Han been like over these years? It's a love-hate relationship. The hate is a strong word for it. I think it's maybe love and difficult is what it is, because... I'll never dismiss what 
the Fast and Furious and what the Han character has done for my career and my family, and it's opened the Hollywood doors. You know, the first time I, you know, Justin and I worked on Fast and Furious, like we would just literally walk around the production office and then go into his office and start like laughing because get all these chairs and the free Snapple and the free water, right? Those little things that we really appreciated because when we were shooting Better Look Tomorrow, we had nothing. We had a, a fold-out table with five sticks of Wrigley Spearmint gum spread out and a box of cold Entenmann donuts. That was our breakfast. That was our craft service. And Better Luck Tomorrow, of course, was the 2002 indie film about overachieving Asian-American teens who flipped the model minority myth on its head when they start doing crimes. So Better Luck Tomorrow was Justin Lin's first solo feature. He co-directed a feature called Shopping Fangs with Quentin Lee. Mm-hmm. And there were still film students at UCLA. And then I heard that this young filmmaker out of UCLA was making an Asian-American film. But I had already worked on a couple of Asian-American films that never finished. And it was kind of a fiasco and it felt like... Yeah, it's great to be part of this movement, but you know we're not going to be able to compete with everybody because you can't even finish the movie. And when I came back to L.A., I was so disenchanted. Anytime I heard about another Asian-American filmmaker, I instantly said, this is probably not a good idea. And I was already probably a few, like maybe five, six years in, right? I mean, I've been already, you know, a journeyman in the business, you know, and the auditions that I would get or the roles that I would get would be, you know, waiter or yakuza. And I felt like maybe the timing wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And this idea of being an actor in Hollywood is not going to happen, right? And then I got a couple of phone calls from some aspiring producers, Asian-American producers, and they said, hey, there's this guy named Justin Lin. He's at UCLA and he's doing this Asian-American film. You should take a look at the script and you should like audition for it, right? And I was like, nah. And then two more friends called and said, hey, you should really take a look at the script. So Justin and I actually met at Denny's on Wilshire and Western in Koreatown. We met to talk about the script, right? Talk about the role and stuff like that. And at that time, I think Han was written as a Filipino character that Mm. drove a Honda Civic and had like a shaved head. Wow. And he was really perpetuating kind of like this, you know, Southern Cali kind of, you know, JDM car culture kind of thug, right? Yeah. And... I'm from Georgia, so I don't identify with that. Like, I'm into American muscle. And, you know, my role models were like, you know, James Dean and Paul Newman, you know, John Wayne, if you will, right? And so this thing did not resonate. So when I sat down with Justin, I said, hey, why can't I audition for Ben, the main character mm-hmm, for Best? Mm-hmm. I better luck tomorrow. And Justin being the, the, the patient older brother, if you will. And he would make a great poker player because he slow played it. And he's like, why not? Let's see. So I went in like three times to read for Ben. And knowing the whole time, I'm way too old looking. I don't fit the vibe. And I said to myself, if this dude casts me, this movie's going to suck. And he's compromising his vision. So after the third audition, he called me and said, hey, man, it's not going to work out. But I would still love for you to play Han. I was like, this is a guy that I would go to battle with. One last shot, because if this doesn't work out, I probably have to go and find a real job. And it was so challenging because we had the whole budget in place, but then the investors had asked Justin to change all the roles to Caucasian. And Justin, being who he is, he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And he started putting the, the equipment on his credit card. But, you know, as soon as the credit card companies know you're maxing it out, 
they basically link to the other companies and then, you know, they'll hold your credit card. So we're screwed. And so then we're, we're stuck and Justin's kind of freaking out. And the only person he knows that really has money is this guy named MC Hammer. Yes. Right? And how does he know MC Hammer? <laughs> so Justin used to work at the Japanese American Museum. He used to be an editor for the downtown Japanese American Museum. And so he was in plans of shooting Better Luck Tomorrow. And at that time, the Canon XL1 three-chip consumer camera was coming out. And if you guys are aware, if you're techies, that was like big deal. So that was the first option of going digital opposed to film. And so Justin went downtown. I think there was a convention down there to look at the new cameras coming out. And Hammer was there. So Hammer is standing next to him and he goes, hey kid, you know anything about this camera? And he kind of helps him out and he goes, hey, so what do you want to do? He goes, well, one day I hope to be a director. They kind of, you know, talk a little bit and Hammer being who he is, gave him his phone number and said, hey, if you ever, you know, need anything, give me a call. So fast forward, the money's not happening. Justin's freaking out. The credit cards are frozen. I think he had the, the phone number like pinned to his, his like bulletin board, his wall, just for, you know, for keepsake, right? And he's like, what the hell? He calls Hammer. Hammer picks up. He's like, what's up? And he's like, hey, do you remember me? He's like, no. He's like, well, I'm this guy. He goes, yeah, so what do you want? He goes, here's the situation. He goes, hey, it's not Hammer time anymore. I can't just be funding these things, but here's 10 grand. Do what you got to do, but, you know, that's, I don't, I don't need it back, but here it is. So if you go and watch Tokyo Drift, Anytime there's a Tokyo City scene, it's hammer time. <laughs> it is literally, right? okay, I will speak to this. It is literally <laughs> Wait, in the what? opening sequence of Tokyo Drift when Lucas Black's character is the montage of him walking through the city. You see him like go down a subway, and as he's riding the escalator down the subway, there's an MC Hammer poster on yes, the wall. Yes. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's this beautiful. is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Wow. Shout out to MC Hammer. Yeah. I didn't know we had him to thank. Literally, yes. the Fast and Furious universe might not exist yeah. otherwise. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And oh. for the film fans out there, he plays Roy Thunder, the agent for the colored in finishing the game. The follow-up film that we did Whoa. after Tokyo Drift. We literally shot the <laughs> film after we did Tokyo Drift so Justin could use a lot of the stage props. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Saving money. Yeah. And finishing the game, of course, yeah. is like a riff on after Bruce Lee's death, how many people just scrambled to like capitalize and, and to, to carry on his legacy in so many different ways. That's right. right. That's right. So, okay, that, that kind of explains... The origins of Han, because your character in Better Luck Tomorrow was also named Han. Yeah. And so there's this really fun tongue-in-cheek bridge between Better Luck Tomorrow, which you did with Justin, and Jason Tobin, another member of the Fast and Furious universe, mm -hmm. and Tokyo Drift. But as the franchise got bigger and bigger and bigger, Han was like just a part of the family, which is mm. beautiful. This mm. huge multicultural, multi-billion dollar franchise. You've got... Crazier and crazier action. It 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 evolved into something so much more than you know, just this two hander, very broy, muscular two hander that the first movie was, and then six happened, in which we said goodbye to Han. <laughs> Seven and eight happened, in which further developments involving the introduction of Jason Statham's character as a character named Shaw, who was then explained retroactively as the person responsible for Han's death happened, which kind of did, led in turn to something that nobody could have 
expected, which is the hashtag Justice for Han movement mm. of fans who were kind of upset with how Han's legacy was treated. And I wonder if you can speak to what that was like for you, that part of your relationship with this character. Well, like I was saying earlier, you know, the love and difficult relationship with the Han character is that the love part is that it did give me such great opportunity and and perspective and an open window into really what this business is, right? The Hollywood business. But then the difficult part is like, you know, look, we live in America. It comes down to data and numbers, right? I thought that after a film like this, maybe there would be more opportunities opening up. Um, after Tokyo Drift. After mm-hmm. Tokyo Drift. Because, you know, you, all of a sudden you go to a premiere, there's interviews, you see your picture online and stuff like that. People are asking for pictures. You go from obscurity to all of a sudden you're the guy. You know, you're the Asian guy. They don't know your name, but you're not Jackie Chan, but you're a guy. And, and people start connecting with you. So, you know, that's the difficult thing with fame is that all of a sudden, you know, your normal life is not normal. And this idea of fame or celebrity starts to feed expectations and then it builds an ego, right? And ego is hard to define, but it's deadly, especially, I think, as an artist and as a man that's growing into looking for his identity or purpose, and then when the industry doesn't really support that, it feels like, oh, this was all like an illusion. You know, it's like, what was this? And I thought we were actually doing something. I thought at the end of it, it was supposed to lead to more opportunity. And I did not feel it on a personal level. And so then you start blaming yourself. And that's why I think a lot of artists you know, are so insecure. And I'll be the first one to admit it's, that's probably why I became an actor. But it starts to manifest and you go... Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm too Asian or I'm too tall or too short, too dark, not all of it. So then that starts to stunt your growth because then you go into an audition, you're scared and you're nervous because this is all you got. It's that one line and some episodic and, you know, you don't want to have 10 jobs, right? And then like I was still working at a restaurant when I did Tokyo Drift. So that's the reality. It's not like you're in a Fast and Furious movie and all of a sudden you're living Fast and Furiously. After the premiere, it's it's Cinderella. It turns back into a pumpkin and you're back. And all of a sudden they're like, you really look like that guy from Tokyo <laughs> Drift, right? And you that's can be where, like tortured yeah. by your own success yeah. a little bit. And like, so you go, well, how do I do this? Like, how do I exist in this world without my ego coming in and going, wait, I think I'm a celebrity, but I'm actually a waiter. The opportunities were not there. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden your appetite gets bigger because you're like, I thought the world was accepting me, but... Just because the audience or the fans accept you does not mean the business accepts you because it's about money. It's it's an old system. You can't take it personal. They're used to the way they do things. And you're not friends. It's a business. You're a product. And it Crazy t- Rich Asians wouldn't come along for like a dozen yeah. more years. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. You know, I, I realized with Better Luck Tomorrow, that journey was like a lot of, you know, Asian American kids, college students and high school kids finally had something that they could look at and go, that's me. One of those characters they could identify with or aspire, or they just see their face and they go, that's me. And after Tokyo Drift, I was like, oh, there's great possibility here to be a leading man, to have other opportunity. And the problem was not, I think, the audience. It was like, we just didn't have writers and other directors out there. And you have to have studio execs and executives. And you have to have other genres. You can't just have one film. You have to have crazy rich Asians. And then you got to have searching. You got to have you got to have them all. You know what I mean? Yeah. You got to have yeah. you have to have young filmmakers like Justin <clears throat> Chan coming in. You know, and redefining what Asian American cinema is. Right. So everybody needs to get together. But 
when you're hungry, you're starving and you're fighting for scraps, to help each other is very hard. It yeah. becomes like almost like like a lobster mentality or, or crabs. Mm-hmm. They like fight over each other. Crabs right? in a barrel. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But it's so good that that you know that it's the industry not moving fast enough. Yeah. That, that it wasn't your work, you know, yeah. that wasn't good enough. I was one of those kids growing up in uh, Tennessee, actually. You know, Han, you know, when I think of people that I imagine my self or look in the mirror and try to like think about basically like when I was trying to date girls and stuff like that I was like I'm gonna be cool like this guy you know (laughs) like there needed to be this kind of template and and there was something about Han where he's this Asian American guy who's like so cool and dating the eventual Wonder Woman rubbing elbows with Vin Diesel and Paul Walker it just seemed like he was almost designed to beat back these stereotypes that were applied to Asian American men, yeah. you know? Yeah. Was that intentional? Or like, were you and Justin like actively aware of these stereotypes about Asian American masculinity and trying to dismantle them? I mean, how could you not be aware? We're two Asian American men that are growing up in America. I mean, we're born in the 70s. So, you know, imagine the experiences that we had. So, you know, we didn't have to think about it. You know, it's like the, the idea of diversity is not trying to make it diverse. You just got to have people in there that understand what it feels to be a minority, right? If you don't have any minority, I don't blame a guy from Tennessee who's never had one Asian American friend not understanding me. For those people to write an Asian American story about Asian American, it's very difficult. You need a perspective that is subjective, right? And just and just by default, you know, he always struggled being the the little Asian guy that wears glasses, you know, and he, his whole life, were fighting these stereotypes. Me, growing up in Georgia, every day it was a fight to have a voice because I wasn't even Korean in Georgia. I was Chinese because they know the difference, right? So our whole existence, our whole idea of becoming storytellers or wanting to participate in Hollywood is to just allow us to have a voice, to be three-dimensional. This is actually the first time I'm in a room with two Asian Americans who grew up in the South. Yeah. And I'm so <laughs> curious to know where your experiences might overlap. Like, what what was it like? You were in Georgia. Song. Tennessee, I was in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Frank was yeah. in Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What was it like growing up in in Georgia for you? I mean, in my high school, there was maybe like one Chinese kid, you know, another Chinese kid who I wasn't friends with. And then there were the Koreans who were all like pretty cool. Like they all had the earrings, you know, they dressed really well. I could have, you know, (laughs) but they all kind of hung out with each other. And so they didn't hang out with us, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm just kind of curious, what was it like growing up in Georgia for you? The beauty, of, I'm going to start with the good, okay? The good is that when you are an outlier and you're the only one, it teaches you survival instincts. That I think when I meet people that grew up in the majority environment, they have a comfort level. That's why you know the swagger that Han had, I had to go and hang out with Koreatown Korean guys. Because they have a different swagger than I did. Because I came from a place of complete insecurity. No voice, no swagger, no girls ever going to touch me. Only time any girl ever talked to me was to ask for algebra or geometry, help on their homework. And I suck. <laughs> like, I'm the worst, at, you know, at anything math related. So, And they also, like, a common conversation was like, would they ever date an Asian guy, right? Right. And so often the answer was no, you know, and then you'd be having this conversation, you know, in front of you and you'd be like, mm, I'm sitting right here, you know. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that ever happened to you. but you Well, know. they never talked to me. It was like you were a leopard. You know, you don't get to participate in the things like prom and those basic, like, 
your learner's permit, 16, you go on a date, all that stuff. That was, it was like watching a movie. When my friends got to do that, when they get invited to a party, it's like me from afar looking at it. Did you not go to prom? No, no, no. I think I went to a homecoming thing with a friend of mine. Yeah. Yeah, that was the most nerve-wracking thing because the idea of dating, talking to the opposite sex was was impossible. I was not allowed to participate in it. So I thought there was something wrong with me. Am I ugly? Is my personality off? So when they say Asian Americans are introverted, that has a lot to do with it because I'm the most outgoing. I think I'm funny. I love to make people laugh. I love to laugh. I'm curious about everybody's life. And you know, when we have a sense, man, we have a radar that a lot of LA dudes don't have. It's like when I walk into a room, I know when I'm not wanted. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, and you could do it with people could be smiling at me and I know it's just the way the world works. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, come on, you know, reporting like I've reported in like Orange County where it's just like a lot of white people and I have to put on, you know, my folksy Tennessee accent. And then I'll go to the San Gabriel Valley and I report around among Asian Americans and it'll be a much better feeling, you know. But at the same time, I feel like growing up in the South means that, like, you know, when I hear about racism and stuff, it doesn't hurt me as much because it's all kind of bounced off of me since I was really young. Since, like, first through seventh grade, I got in fights every year because people would call me chink and I would fight them. I didn't win the fights, you know, but (laughs) I started them. And, uh, you know, coming to California, you know, coming to UCLA, sometimes it was just, like, a complete trip to, like, look up in a room and realize that everyone is Asian American. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. You you did the same thing too, right? You you moved to uh, a Barstow yeah. when, when you were, how old were you? I, I was just going into my sophomore year, I think. Yeah. And Barstow, I don't know too much about it, but I just know that there's not too much to know about Barstow. Yeah, there, there was never an Asian community. I think there was a couple of other Asian families there, Chinese families. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually love living in Barstow. Mm. You know, Barstow was my first introduction to California culture. Barstow is a big Hispanic community there. It's the first time I ever met people from Mexico. Like I, I thought so exotic. You know, they go, "Where are you from? Where's your family?" They go, "Mexico." Go, Mexico. <laughs> wow. Right. I gotta yeah. visit. Right. Yeah. Tacos. So gotta, yeah. Because I'm a hick. I would call it quesadillas. Do you go to the bathroom? Then this ad is for you. It's hard to believe that when we use the toilet in this country, most of us wipe instead of wash. That's crazy. Imagine jumping in the shower and not turning on the water, just wiping your body with dry paper. For years, bidets have been available, but hideously expensive, costing thousands of dollars. The Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment is here to democratize the blessings bestowed by bidets and offer clean behinds to everyone. Hello Tushy uses a precise stream of fresh water to leave you feeling clean. And it's only $79. It attaches to your existing toilet, requires no electricity or additional plumbing, and cuts toilet paper use by 80%. So the Hello Tushy bidet pays for itself in a few months. Because with Hello Tushy, you don't need to wipe at all. Even the best two-ply just can't compete when it comes to a hands-free bathroom experience. Ditch paper products and uncomfortable chafing when you switch to the soothing, cleansing stream of water from a Hello Tushy bidet attachment. And every Hello Tushy bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty. Join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and end every flush with a smile. Go to hellotushy.com enough to get 10% off. 
This is a special offer just for our listeners. So go to hellotushy.com slash enough for 10% off. hellotushy.com slash enough. Look around you. It's a wireless world, and that means everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. But before you go dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. You already know Raycon earbuds started about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds in the market, and that they sound just as amazing as other top audio brands you know. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are their best ones yet. With six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice, noise-isolating fit. When I got my pair, they were game-changing. I work from home sometimes, and it's important for me to stay focused. Raycon's wireless earbuds let me listen to the high-quality music I love, whether I'm at my desk or walking around the house. The company was co-founded by Ray J, and celebrities like Cardi B and Brandy are obsessed with Raycons. So pick up a pair and see what the hype is all about. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash Asian Enough. That's buyraycon.com slash Asian Enough for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash Asian Enough. From an early morning breakfast burrito to a bottle of wine after work, sometimes you just need what you need delivered fast. And that's where Postmates comes in. On days where work gets crazy, I know I can count on Postmates to bring me the lunch I need to keep my energy high and make my deadlines. Just yesterday, I got a handful of last-minute projects and hadn't had time to pack lunch. Luckily, Postmates saved the day and delivered me my favorite salmon poke bowl. But Postmates doesn't just deliver burgers and sushi. They actually make my life easier with grocery delivery and whatever I can think of delivery, too. Convenience stores, clothing stores, you name it. So no more trips to the store. No more late-night fast food runs, and I don't even have to worry about where to grab lunch anymore. Just download Postmates on iOS or Android. Find your favorites and get anything you want delivered within the hour. For a limited time, Postmates is giving Asian Enough listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days on Postmates. To start your free delivery, download the app and use code ENOUGH. That's code ENOUGH for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. Asian Enough is presented by Little America, the acclaimed comedy series now streaming exclusively on Apple TV Plus for your Emmy Awards consideration. Inspired by the true stories featured in Epic Magazine, Little America goes beyond the headlines and looks at the funny, romantic, heartfelt, inspiring, and surprising stories of immigrants in America, and they're more relevant now than ever. Episodes include The Cowboy, where a Nigerian student finds a sense of connection through Oklahoma's cowboy culture, and The Jaguar, where an undocumented high school student's life is changed by an urban squash coach. Apple TV Plus is available on the Apple TV app on iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, iPod Touch, Mac, select Samsung and LG smart TVs, Amazon Fire TV and Roku devices, as well as at tv.apple.com for $4.99 per month with a seven-day free trial. Customers who purchase a new iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Mac, or iPod Touch can enjoy one year of Apple TV Plus for free. Get Apple TV Plus and stream all of Little America today.
what brought your family to Georgia and then to Barstow? Uh, because my stepfather was in the military. Without my stepfather, I don't think I could have navigated or been able to last in Hollywood. And he's an African-American guy from Paris, Texas. And he's my dad. He's the man that raised me. We come from a big, huge family of African-American like civil rights participants. My dad marched with King. My grandfather, Big Papa, was like the first African-American police officer in Paris, Texas, right? Wow. Uh, one of my aunties is arguably like the first black nurse in Nevada. He grew up in Paris, Texas, where, you know, when he would share stories and his cousins would share stories at family reunions, you know, they dealt with racism on a different level. And growing up in Georgia, I remember there were certain things that would happen at school. And I would come home and I would go, Dad, we got to go back to school and you got to help me. You got to complain. And he would say, well, this is your introduction to the, the real world. He goes, son, I'm not going to be able to share with you what a black man is going to have to deal with in America. But if you're asking to have the same type of credit, if that's what you're going for, you're never going to get it. You have to be the first one there, last one to leave. And you still might not get any accolades. And you have to do it for the right reason. You have to do it for yourself. And winning at the end of the day, even if you get no credit, you get no love, there's no popularity, you know you did it. And the right, there are certain people that will know. So this is your first lesson. You can't get mad. Us going to school and complaining and yelling, then, then we become what they want. You silently just keep going. And in Hollywood, I would always have to remind myself, yo, it's all about rejection, right? If I give up now, they win. Right. And I think that's where Justin and I, we have this kind of like sports mentality is that you beat us, that fuels us. It's like, okay, I'll show you. I think that's the only thing that kept us going. Because if it was for fame and money, we probably would have quit. We would have quit a long time ago. Right. Having that perspective of, of the African American experience that my dad would go through, there were kids that would throw rocks at him and his cousin walking down the street and they threw rocks back. And his grandfather, I mean, it, it was a police officer in the town. And Big Daddy came to pick up the kids and said, never do that again, because in this time you will get lynched. Right? So if, you know, me getting in a fight with some, you know, racist bullies, you know, I'm not getting lynched. I just get beat up. But at that time, he would get lynched. So he goes, you live in a different time, but use it as fuel. Right? So. I so identify with that because I received the same message from my Taiwanese immigrant parents, you know, but but in a totally different form, you know, and, and that whole mentality of like, I'll show you like, I love that. I, I think like when I first started writing about Asian American stuff in, in 2012, you know, there wasn't a huge audience for it. People didn't really consider it serious journalism. And I was like, I'll show you. <laughs> You know, yeah. over the last couple of years, you know, like uh, every article, you know, every, every, everything you do is like an argument. You know, you're trying to win that argument with your haters, yeah. essentially. Yeah. What made you move to Los Angeles? Because I want to be an actor. You know, I wanted to be an actor. So at the time, the only person I saw on screen that I said that I would love to have that type of career or that inspired me was an actor named Jason Scott Lee. And mm -hmm. he was in a movie called Map of the Human Heart. And I was working as a, a furniture mover in San Francisco during like the summer once. And one of my coworkers said, hey, there's this Asian-American actor. He's playing at the Kabuki in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. He goes, let's go and watch it. You want to be an actor? I mean, we should go. And I was like, man, he's going to do Kung Fu. And I don't want to do that. And we're watching it. It was just this really wonderful, beautiful art house film. And he has a romantic interest that is, I think she was a French actress, right? And 
I was like, it's possible. I went back to it and hunted Jason Scott Lee down, right? <laughs> I hunted him down going, I need to know how he got here. Who did he study with? What was his process? Because it's like, who are my mentors? We all need our Jordan. We all need our Kobe's. Mm-hmm. And if we don't see our face up there, right? Like, what, what's, the, what's the path, right? Like, Jackie Chan, Jet Li, they're amazing at what they do, right? And they're icons, but I don't share any of their experience. They're natives. They're stars in their own country. So who's my big brother? So I said, I'm going to make Jason Scully my big brother. So I was doing an extra job I found in the back of a Korean newspaper. <laughs> right? It was for CENCOM security for Korea. It was like a home security system. And Columbo, Peter, Peter Falk, he was the star. So because he was the star, <laughs> I was like, I'll be an extra, right? Because I just wanted to be around yeah. an actor. And so I was like background, like in this, this commercial he did for Korea. And the line producer was a Korean-American guy that grew up in Santa Monica, the surfer dude. And he was like, hey, bro, you want to be an actor, right? I was like, yeah. He goes, hey, you know this actor named Jason Scott Lee? I found this teacher. I'm going to go meet him tomorrow. And so I said, you got to take me with you. So we went and met this guy named Sal Romeo, who also was the teacher for Dustin Nguyen, another Asian American from 21 Jump Street, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Jason Scott Lee, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going, this is the guy. This This Italian guy, right? (laughs) That is method acting. That is all like actor studio based, right? It's like he has taught like the other two Asian American male actors that I look up to. I go, this is my guy, right? So... From that day on, I've been studying with Sal. He's like my, he's my guru, you know? What was the secret to why he act, he worked with so many Asian American actors? You know, I, I have no idea. Wait, can we rewind? Okay. Back in Georgia, even before Barstow, when did you know you wanted to act? Was your family into, would you watch movies and TV together? The movie part of it, the, the romance with films came from my stepfather. Really? Yeah, we... We're so different, and he is so old school. He's a military guy. So, you know, we woke up at the crack of dawn. We didn't connect, and he loved football, and I loved swimming and weird sports like, you know, wrestling. And he was like, it's, you know, it needs to be baseball or football, right? The thing that we could connect with was going to the movies. And he would take us to drive throughs. And I have a great story. This is how, <laughs> this is how crazy our family was, is that some, my dad being a true American loves the whole process of going to a theater, right? You go, you go get the popcorn, you get the Coke and Pepsi, you get milk duds, enjoy the whole process. My mother, being Korean, is the cheapest human being in the whole world, right? <laughs> yeah, milk duds? Right, no. <laughs> yeah. So we have this tradition going to the movies together. And so my little sister and mom wanted to tag along. So... We're like, there's a doubleheader, the Mad Max doubleheader, Ooh, right? At the nice. local drive-in. And so my mother goes, they charge for the adults, not per car, and the kids are free. She goes, I'm going to hide in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> there's this there's this Korean fake mink blanket with like tiger patterns on it. She put that in the trunk and she put chocolate milk in a like a trash bag because it's that's wow. She, you it, mean like in case somebody wanted chocolate milk, right? Because we didn't have containers. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then I'm writing she, down Korean mink blanket to yeah. do a story about this later. <laughs> and she brought Shasta, right? A yeah. warm bottle of Shasta, like diet Shasta. This very <laughs> specific <laughs> placement. Yeah. Yeah. Shasta, you yeah. can't get oh, Coca-Cola yeah. products. Oh yeah. man, yeah. yeah. And she made popcorn at home, and she goes, <laughs> "We're not buying anything." And my dad was so pissed off because he had to pull over the side of the road. She gets in the trunk, and then we go into the <laughs> drive-in. And then he goes, come on, kids. 
And so we go and buy all the popcorn. He left my mom in the trunk <laughs> for like 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, just as we wrap up, you have Fast 9 coming up, but you have so many other things going on as well. And we'd love to hear about the the new projects you're working on, things you're launching, and sort of where you're at now in terms of of embracing the voice and the platform that you have. Well, I, I have some projects. I have a couple other film and TV projects coming out. I also have a website. It was my first attempt at a podcast with you. It's called Songs Garage. It's an opportunity for me to give back. Within the car community, I've met some amazing, amazing people. And Songs Garage is a place where we, hopefully we have a connection through a love affair with a car. But at the end of it, hopefully we help each other to be better people in life. And my end goal in life is to leave this earth just as a good person. That's it. That's my contribution. And I feel like I'm so blessed with the opportunities that I have now that I, I want to pay it forward. So I created this Sunk's Garage to allow people to come and you know share their stories, to have real conversations. And it's not this, hey, look at me and let me talk about how glamorous my life is. It's really to put a spotlight on the the heroes in life that will never get a stage, right? And, you know, I'm not interested in the rich guy and the famous guy driving a Lambo. I want somebody who, you know, is a good father, a good brother, just a good friend, just a good person. And those simple heroes are the people that inspired me. And that's what I want to share. So, yeah. And we don't have much time left. And so I really want to get this. Uh, we're si- I want to paint the picture a little bit. Like we're sitting in the studio with a... <laughs> Han Memorial here, <laughs> wreathed by some white flowers that uh, yes. Jen has created. I have left an mm-hmm. offering of uh, Kit Kats and oh, sun cakes it's at lovely. the. It's like a little. <laughs> but I need to go into this. All right, I got. I got to into. This. I know she keeps refusing, and she she's so <laughs> humble. But I have to say, Jen, that if it wasn't for you, right, and you doing these things and campaigning for the the, the justice for Han. I don't think it would have ever got to the studio's head. They wouldn't have been aware of it. I don't think they would have felt like, does it merit something to invest into? And I think you really put the wind behind the sail for this movement. So if anybody deserves credit, it's you. So I know you keep shaking your head, <laughs> but this proves it because you didn't make this yesterday. This is how many years old, right? <laughs> this, well, that's very sweet of yeah. you to say. I'm just glad that you're back. I'm glad that you have heard, you know, over the years, so many fans, like so many fans on social media, in real life, telling you that it means something to you, what happens to this character's legacy, because you made it important to them. Mm-hmm. And I think it is meaningful that Universal listened to those fans and listened to the reaction to these creative decisions that are made in a huge, huge, huge blockbuster machine. This one character and what happened to this one character meant so much to so many people. We everyone's talking about what we have in the studio with us is my homemade Han memorial that uh, I made for one of my Fast and Furious barbecues. Fast and Furious barbecues. Yes, Just yes, make yes. Sure that. Co-hosted by a filmmaker, friend of mine, Ben David Grabinski. This memorial was made uh, by hand by myself and my friend Annette. Look, there's so many people in my life who love these movies and love Han. And when it came to our third annual Fast and Furious barbecue. The second one was called Too Fast, Too Barbecue, obviously. (laughs) What other name could it possibly have? And the third annual one was called Fast and Furious 
Barbecue Drift. Oh, man. And it was also, there was a subhead. It was the Han Solo Memorial Barbecue because it mattered to us what this franchise was saying about this character that we loved. I am so sure that it sounded very crazy to you at first that people were, like, taking it this seriously. Well, it, it, I mean, it wasn't crazy because the reason I, at first, it, it was uncomfortable was because it all of a sudden puts hope in your head. Mm. Right? And you got to remember the state of mind. is like, I'm not thinking about the fans and stuff. It's like, I need to survive. Right? You mean so, work-wise? Yeah, work-wise. Mm. Because you're, you know, you're out there, you're hustling, you're auditioning. There's no work, right? So when you see something like this, it's just a reminder of... Of the irony of life, right? It's like, oh, this character is so popular. It meant so much to you. You're actually doing this whole thing. But who's going to listen? You know, and I'm like, God, thank you so much. But it'll probably fall on deaf ears. And that's where you never know in life. And then all of a sudden you wake up and you get a phone call. It's like, hey, the fans want you back. And you're like, what? Is that what somebody said on the phone? That's, yeah. I mean, when I got the call from Justin, he's like, hey, they want Han back. You know, this Justice for Han thing is happening. It was only him that could actually make it work. It's that time in our program where we ask our guests to share a bad Asian confession, which is any time that's made you feel like you've been a bad Asian. So Sung, what is one of yours? As an Asian American, I felt bad that when Asian Crazy Rich Asians came out, I was hesitant, you know? And now I feel like, thank you, Crazy Rich Asians. Thank you. Filmmakers like Justin Chan again for doing the work you do to give me hope again. It's a confession and also a big thank you for these guys, you know? That makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, even though we have this new generation and not just new filmmakers, but we have this wave of filmmakers that we can point to who are bringing Asian American stories and voices to Hollywood, like Justin Chan, who made the film Gook. Mm-hmm. Um, Miss Purple. Miss yeah. Purple more recently. John M. Chu, who's doing huge things, not even within the Crazy Rich Agents, you know, but he did the Step Up to the Streets yeah. movie yeah. that I love. For yeah. so, so, like, he, and he's doing In the Heights next. There's a lot of people that we can point to now that were not prominently visible back when you were in this, in this time, That's like right. post Tokyo Drift. That's right. When you're seeing, like, so many doors closed to you. Mm-hmm. And and that's something that's really wild to me because, like, I get why Crazy Rich Asians might have triggered something in, in you, which is to say, do I dare hope that this changes things? Right. right. This sort of built-up cynicism of watching Asian Americans in Hollywood for a yeah. decade, right? But, yeah. you know, it, 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 listening to you makes me aware, and uh, I'm thinking, it's like, we do have to give credit to the infrastructure that was set up before Crazy Rich Asians mm-hmm. because for, I think, directors like John, Chu, and Justin Lin, Justin Chan mm-hmm. to exist, they, we needed also supporting our community. Mm-hmm. And that's where film festivals like the former VC Visual Communications Film Festival, the Absolutely. San Diego, the, the NADA, I, I think they changed their name in San Francisco. It's probably the San Francisco International Film Festival now. All those film festivals, like there was one in Philadelphia, the New York Asian American Film Festival, all over the country, you know, even though maybe only a few hundred people show up, you know, it started compounding, right? And without those film festivals, the short films and the bad films Mm -hmm. that we made, (laughs) but I had no chance of ever being seen. And that's where you have to fall on your face. We have to allow us, you know, allow our community to make mistakes. And that's where you grow, right? And these film festivals gave I know, I'll speak for myself, 
it gave me tremendous hope because I would go to these things and I would see people with a similar dream, similar faces, right? And it gave me a sense of community. So you, we have to give credit to those people and all the people that founded those film festivals. Well, right? there's VC Online and the LA Asian Pacific yeah. Film Festival yeah. that are still to this day put on by people who were some of your loudest supporters right. back then That's and right. supporters for the movement ever since then. That's right. Like David Magdale, the great David That's Magdale, right. who literally told me he was like, at Sundance for Better Luck Tomorrow, he was part of a team that would literally go to the, the one grocery store in town in Park That's City right. looking for any blank VHS tapes that they could That's right. to put you know, uh, screeners on to give to press, to That's spread right. the word. That's right. Yeah, I mean, people have done the work of like creating community. And now I think we're just reaping the rewards these right. past few years. Right. Is, is, and now there's an audience and enthusiasm from our own community for Asian American things. And, and that's like a pretty wonderful feeling. Yeah. To, to be around. It's the first time I ever felt like we're truly part of the color palette. Before, we we're a secondary color right in the business of Hollywood now you cannot ignore and I, I, I'm sorry to put us under the yellow color but you need that in that rainbow and it's part of the you know part of business now right it, they don't second guess it anymore do you have a bad Asian confession that you want to share with us call us at 213-986-5652 that's 213-986-5652 maybe we'll even play it on the show Okay, that's it for episode 11 of our podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Frank Xiong, and by Jen Yamato. Our senior producer is Rena Palta. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. And as always, this podcast is dedicated to the memory of Lina Anwar. And come back next week when we'll be talking to director John M. Chu. I was too scared to sort of tackle my own idea of identity because I didn't know the answers. If you like Asian Enough, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, Reed Johnston, Shelby Grad, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and The Times is in the business of reporting them. So stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support latimes to subscribe. And remember, anytime you watch a Fast and Furious movie, remember the rap icon whose early support of an indie filmmaker, in its own way, helped make all those flying cars, chronological detours, and hashtag family shenanigans possible. It's hammer time. An earlier version of this episode misidentified the additional financiers that helped save Better Luck Tomorrow. We regret the error, and it has been removed from the original podcast episode. 